What's up, guys? Uh, my name's Jordan. I'm one of the college pastors here. When I saw the amount of hands go up, got me hyped. I got to make sure that I give you this invite personally. So the whole lead up of all that stuff that Drew was talking about is building to two kickoffs that we've got going on this week that if you are a college student, you got to be there. Okay, so uh, the best way to find out more info about what's going on is to find us on social media. So Salt St. Paul is the one that's overreaching out to St. Thomas and St. Kate's and then Salt U of M is here. The Salt St. Paul kickoff is Thursday night, and then the U of M one is Friday night, right out on Kaufman Front Lawn, set up in the middle of campus and talk about Jesus. It's so good. So we want you there. So please come to that. Bring people. Do your thing. All right. So if you would flip open to 1 Peter with me, we're closing out our summer series in 1 Peter. And this book has been so helpful for me for a lot of reasons. But one of the primary reasons is because it's just, it keeps reminding me of eternity. So there's been this consistent theme throughout the book of 1 Peter that, that it's pointing you to another world. This idea that there's something beyond this place that, that is our Christian hope, but that will filter back in and affect our lives now. A, a real place that's actually around us. And, and so we're hitting that theme again this week. There's going to be some, some new concepts introduced. Uh, specifically, it does talk about Satan a little bit, but it all kind of lands back to that same theme to close out the book of 1 Peter. And when I was thinking about this, I thought about the movie Inception, which a lot of you have seen, and you had a trippy experience watching that movie, just like I did. If you haven't seen Inception, it's a great film, but here's the, the basic concept is this, is you can get hooked up to this machine, and it can cause you to go into this deep sleep and you start to dream. And it's kind of like lucid dreaming where you're conscious and you can, you can make decisions and, and do things in this world. And it feels so real, right? And you guys have had this where you have a dream and you're like convinced it's the real thing and you wake up and it's like, that was crazy. Of course that wasn't real, right? You know what it's like for a dream to feel real. And so this is one of the primary problems in that movie is when people have been dreaming so long that they lose track of reality. They, they get lost in the dream and actually exchange it for real life. And I think this is what Peter is telling us. Is that here's what we believe as Christians is that there is a real world beyond this one. And it's the place where we put our hope. It's, it's, it's the place that validates everything that we believe as Christians. And it doesn't just exist in the future, but there's a supernatural world that exists right now and interacts with our natural world. And this is what Peter is saying is that that place is real. C.S. Lewis had this like picture that he talked about uh, that if we could take one of us right now and put us on the outskirts of heaven that our feet would get cut on the grass because the grass is so much more substantive than anything that we have in this world. It's, it's real. There's, there's substance there. And so this is what Peter is saying is that if you get so consumed with this life that you forget to realize that there's a supernatural existence beyond this world and all around it, it's like you've got lost in the dream. You've exchanged a dream for reality. This place is the dream. This place is fading away. That place is our real home. And it's what we're waiting for as Christians. And this is what Peter's trying to do is he's trying to shake us awake and remind us of home. And one of the ways that you can shake someone awake or that he's tried to shake us awake is by reminding us of the hope that we have coming 
But I think what he's doing in this text specifically, 1 Peter 5, today, is he's shaking us awake by helping us to realize the danger of that supernatural world. So, so here's what's true. If, let's get a little sci-fi on this. If, if you could open up a portal and you could walk into the supernatural realm that exists all around us and you could actually see what's happening, here's what you would see is there is a war going on for your soul. Okay, so like Isaac talked about, it's, it's an unfair fight. God ultimately will win. But here's what's true, even right now in this moment, is there is a war happening for your soul. There's a creature called Satan, a supernatural creature, who hates God and hates you and doesn't want what's good for you. And he is warring to try and remove your soul from the presence of God. I'm getting this from 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded. So be clear-headed, be watchful. So recognizing danger, why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Okay, so that word Satan, we have kind of some weird pictures of that, but what that word means is the accuser or the deceiver. There is a personal yet supernatural being who is right now accusing you before God and badly wants to derail your faith. And he has been studying human behavior throughout all of human history. And he's gotten really good at understanding how to get human beings to live for things that don't matter. He's gotten really good at convincing you that to want things in life that will actually train wreck your faith and kill your soul. And that is what he wants. And his first and best tactic is to make you believe that he doesn't exist so that you're not watching out for him. Okay. I feel like we need a side note at this point because just to summarize what I just said, there's a supernatural being that's like playing tricks and like trying to kill your soul in the supernatural realm that you can't see. That's literally what I just said. That's what the Bible says. That feels crazy to us. Okay, so, so a lot of you in this room, I think you believe that, but you believe it in theory, right? So you know it's theoretically the idea that the Bible ascribes to you, but it's hard for you to actually believe that that's real and true in practice. It's hard for that reality to impact your daily life. So most of the sermon is for you, and we'll talk about that. But I think there's some of you in this room that are skeptical of that whole concept in general. The idea of a supernatural realm, the idea of an evil being that's working against us, you're, you're skeptical of that whole idea. And I, I actually get that, okay? So I, I grew up around Christianity, but I haven't always just assumed these Christian beliefs that I now hold. I went through a period in my life where I looked at that stuff, like the idea of heaven and hell and God and Satan and, and supernatural existence, and I just went, I don't, I don't know that I actually believe that's true. And I, for the most part, abandoned my faith and I investigated other religions. I investigated atheism, agnosticism. Okay, so I've, I've been there. I've doubted a lot of this stuff and, and I actually can understand how you get there, but I'm asking you to consider some of the naturalistic biases that you have as a part of being a part of this culture and to consider what the Bible would have to say about those things. So for some of you, so this is, this is my side note, right? For some of you, you might struggle to believe this thing that we're talking about, about a supernatural world, because you 
assume naturalism and you would say there is no evidence for a supernatural world. I actually would disagree with that. There was a real historical figure named Jesus Christ who claimed that he would die and rise from the dead three days later. And then three days later, there was nobody in the tomb and there was 500 eyewitnesses of him coming to life. And when you look at the evidence of the explanation for that, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead is the best explanation hands down for what happened in Jerusalem 2000 years ago. I think that's actually pretty good evidence of the supernatural. That's a separate discussion. Don't have time for that. But so you might say there's no evidence for the supernatural. I would ask you, what evidence do you have for naturalism? And you might say, well, we have science and we have the scientific method that can prove what's true and not true about the world. And that's great. And I'm actually not anti-science. I think it's unfortunate that we make such a gap between science and religion. But what is science designed to do? It's designed to measure the natural world. It's not the right measure for figuring out what's happening supernaturally. It's like taking a tape measure and trying to figure out how many ounces of water are in a glass. It's, it's just not the right measure for what you're trying to answer. And actually the idea that you have to discover all truth through the scientific method is self-defeating because that statement itself, that you have to discover all truth through the scientific method, you can't prove that by the scientific method. So this is what I'm, I'm asking you to do is see, yeah, there are difficulties of things to believe with every claim of truth in the world. There's also difficulties with the views you hold. And I just want you to, to, to see what the Bible has to say and to recognize that largely you believe in naturalism because that is the cultural context that we're in. But in the history of the world, that's actually an incredibly niche view that most people throughout time have rejected as illogical consider supernaturalism as a legitimate worldview. Consider the evidence back on, okay? Coming back. Why does it matter that you understand that there is a supernatural realm? Why did I just go to that work to ask you to consider that? Why does it matter? Here's why. Because there's a lion on the loose. That is a significant thing, if that is true, that we need to understand, right? So he says, that there is a lion prowling around seeking for someone to devour. Okay, let's picture you're on a nice little walk through the woods. You're having yourself a nice time. You're looking at the trees. You're listening to the birds. And then I come up to you and I give you just one piece of information. And I just say, hey, just wanted you to know there's a lion in here. That would drastically affect your walk in the woods, Right? This is what this is saying is the Christian life is not a leisurely walk through the woods. There's a lion in there. Look out, be on guard, be aware of what's happening around you. Try to get out alive. It's changing your viewpoint of the Christian world. Now, if that was all there was, I think that would actually not be super helpful advice. Because here's the deal, at least before you were enjoying your walk, before you got ate by a lion, now you're just going to be terrified, but still get eaten by a lion. Because what are you going to do about it? There's no game plan for defense against the lion, right? Okay, I think that what this text is saying is that, that Peter is giving us a game plan for how to defend against the lion that wants to devour our souls. So in World War II, the Germans were using this machine called the Enigma and it, it was this encryption device where if you would enter in the message that you wanted to send to 
the other Germans, it would, it would translate that and it would encrypt it. And it was supposed to be unbreakable so that nobody ever could figure out what their messages were. But actually, there was a group of mathematicians and scientists that ended up cracking the enigma. And so what happened is, is unbeknownst to the Germans, uh, the Allies now knew all of the places that the Germans were about to attack. It was like they had a war map, and in advance, they knew exactly where the Germans would, would, were going to go. And so what were they able to do? They were able to defend against it because they knew the next move that was coming, and they were able to defend against it and eventually win the war. This is what I'm saying, is I think that First Peter is cracking the code of Satan for us. And he's laying out for us right now what the game plan of Satan is to try and attack your soul so that you know what's coming and can defend against it. Essentially, what I'm talking about here is a spiritual war that's happening around you. In other words, spiritual warfare. Some of you maybe have never heard that in your life. Don't worry about it. Some of you have. You've got weird connotations with it. This form of spiritual warfare is actually quite normal. What we will see in this text is that the primary way that Satan tries to attack you is not with some sort of external freaky things out here, but it's actually something inside of you. He tries to attack you with your own sin. Your sin is a device of Satan to try and kill your soul. And there's, there's this quote that was really helpful for me in trying to understand this from a guy named William Grinnell. He said this, if men hear at a voice at night, they cry out, the devil, the devil, and they run for their life. But they carry around the devil in their very hearts all day. For if you have a proud spirit, or if you have resentment, or if you have anxiety, you are under his power. My friends, why don't you run from your pride crying, the devil, the devil? Why don't you run from your resentment and your grudges yelling, the devil, the devil? Run from them in terror. Do you see what he's saying? The primary way that Satan will try to influence you in your life is the sin inside of you, and you should run from it as satanic. Your sin is trying to kill you. Run. So tactic number one of Satan is he will try to use your pride. Look at 1 Peter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Okay, so this, this first form of pride is becoming a self-exalter. So, so notice the pattern there. He said, humble yourself, and then later on, God will exalt you, which that in and of itself is wild, by the way. The word exalt means to, to lift up, to celebrate. What this is saying is that if you humble yourself now, later on, God will lift you up and celebrate you. That's amazing. But our temptation is to do the exact opposite. Instead of waiting for God to exalt us, we want to become self-exalters because we're insecure. We don't know what we're worth. We want to try and prove that we're valuable. And so we exalt ourselves to other people, to God, to ourselves, to try and convince ourselves that we're okay, that, that, we're, that our lives are worth it and that it matters. And so one of the primary indicators that you've become a self exalter is when you get competitive with other people or you start comparing yourself to them. So let me just give you a list of symptoms of self-exalting. When you consistently analyze conversations that are about to happen or have happened, 
You know where you do that thing where you think back on a conversation and you think about how you were perceived in that conversation and you're nervous about it? You're trying to craft an image in their mind, right? When you have unconfessed sin in your life, you're, you're unwilling to tell someone about what's wrong with you because it doesn't fit the image that you've tried to craft. When you feel like people or situations or conversations are not worth your time, Essentially, you create a, a ranking system and, and put yourself as more important, and, and that conversation isn't worth your time. When you're easily annoyed with people in your life, when you get defensive, right? When you have, when you have conflict, you assume that, that the other person is wrong, or when someone confronts you, you, you defend yourself instead of listening to what they have to say. When you're better at finding someone else's faults than you are at finding your own. That's pride. That's self-exaltation. Essentially what that is, is you're, you're doing this thing where you're saying, you're right here, you're here, me, you, me. And you're trying to demonstrate your superiority. And here's why that's dangerous, is it will put you in conflict with other people in your life but even more dangerous is it puts you in competition with God. Okay, look at this. Back at verse six, humble yourselves therefore, so that therefore is there to connect it to the previous verse. So the previous verse said this, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud. When you are proud, when I am proud, we're putting ourselves in opposition to God. So here's God's evaluation of you. This is what it says is that he gives grace to the humble. So this is his evaluation of you is that you are not enough on your own. You need grace. And by the way, he is really ready to give it to you. Any person willing to humble themselves and come to him, God is ready to offer them grace. But that's his evaluation. Here's your evaluation of you. Actually, I'm kind of okay on my own. I, I've got this covered. If I can just show how good I am, then I won't really need your grace, God. And it says, God opposes the proud. That's terrifying. You do not want to get in a fight with God. You do not want to be opposed by God. That is not going to end well for you. And so humble yourself. That actually can happen. Humility isn't just a characteristic that you're born with. It's something that you can become as a Christian. As you see Jesus as amazing and beautiful and you want to follow him, you can humble yourself before him and wait for him to exalt you. But I want you to notice a second kind of pride that I think flies under the radar a little bit more that we don't really realize is happening. This is in verse 6 and verse 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Okay, so it would be easy to think that those two verses are about different things, right? So verse 6 is about pride and humility, and verse 7 is about anxiety. But this is what I, what I want to show you, is those verses are actually connected, so when it says humble yourselves, there's kind of a parenthetical statement, and it says essentially by casting all your anxieties on him. The way that you put on humility is by casting off anxiety. Or another way to put it is that anxiety is pride and therefore sin. Almost none of us actually think of it that way. And here's why. is because 
we can become anxious about our standing with God or we can become anxious about our standing with other people and we do that thing where I'm like, oh, I'm not good enough and, I'm, and I'm, I'm nervous about this and I'm nervous that God doesn't actually love me, that other people don't actually love me and that looks like humility but it's actually pride because it's self-obsession. Anxiety is one of the few vices that we mistake for a virtue. Instead of being self-obsessed, look outside of yourself to the one who cares for you. This is why anxiety is a sin. Verse seven is because God cares for you. Like he cares more about your life and the concerns that you have for your life than you do. Like think about every insignificant little thing in your life that you're nervous about that, that you would never tell anyone else because there's no way that they would actually care about that thing. God cares about that. He cares, he, he's ruling over the universe and he cares about your little insignificant fears and anxieties. And not only does he care about it, but he cares for you. So like someone that's sick or weak, they get cared for by a stronger person. God cares for you in your sickness, in your weakness. But this is what you have to see is that every single time you worry, you're refusing to believe that God actually cares for you. You're calling God a liar. Tim Keller said this, worry is a stab at the integrity of of God's love. When you're tempted towards anxiety, I want you to think about the situation that you found yourself in as a Christian. If you are in Christ, you are a co-heir with Christ, which means that God has given you access to everything that he has. He said that nothing can separate you from his love. Height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation could possibly separate you from the love of God. When life isn't going the way that you want it to, when you're in pain and suffering, God can take that evil and he can transform it into good. And the biggest evidence of his care for you is that he let his son hang on a cross for you. He cared so much about you that he took the most valuable thing in the universe, his son, and he let him sacrifice himself for you because you were that important to him. That's how much he cares about your life. That's how much he cares for you. And so here's what that means. Is there's no circumstance in your life that can trump that care. Like that God will always care for you and take care of you. He proved that by the amazing lengths that he was willing to go to for you. And so this is what this is saying is to cast off all of your anxiety. It's this idea of once and for all throwing off anxiety. Like if you could collect all of your anxieties and put them in front of your face and then you just throw them off on God. No other human being could take those for you because they couldn't carry the weight, but God's shoulders are big enough for your anxieties. And not only are they big enough, is he strong enough to carry them, but he cares about what's going on in your life. That's wild. And so you cast off all your anxieties. That reminded me of Philippians 4, which says this, do not worry about anything. What? What? About anything? Okay, let's play this out. Literally, don't worry about anything. You're freaked out about a test? Don't worry about it. 
You, you, you're laying in bed at night. You're thinking about the, the emails, the stuff that you've got to get done tomorrow. You know, the, the little stuff going on at home, just the, the busyness, the stress of life. You're running late. All those little things, you don't actually have to have worry. The big things. Pain, sickness, loss. You don't have to worry. You, you, could, you could lose your job, have no idea what was about to happen to you or to your family, and you wouldn't have to worry. Why? Because you have the foundation of the care of God in your life. And you know, if you are in Christ, he will turn every circumstance out for your good. Are, imagine this. What if we actually did that? What if we as Christians actually didn't worry about anything? Like, what if somebody's venting to you and they're like, yeah, I just got a ton going on at home and the, you know, stuff with kids isn't going well or, or I've got homework, whatever. I've got all this stuff going on and I'm just, I'm just really stressed about it, you know? And you could go, nope, I don't know. I can't relate to anxiety at all. Can you imagine not being able to relate to anxiety? How awesome would that be? That is the life that is offered to you in Christ. You never have to worry again. I, like, I have not believed that for most of my life. I mean, I know it was there, but I was just like, I, I don't know. I don't get it. And I kept worrying. And I feel like God, a little bit in my life this week, has been reminding me of this. And I start to get nervous about something. And he's like, hey, you don't have to do that. And I'm like, really? I don't? And then I don't. It, it's wild. Like, this actually can work. You actually can speak back to those thoughts in your mind and say, you know what? God's got this. I'm fine. And you don't have to be consumed by anxiety. I've been thinking about Christian maturity lately. And I think I used to think about Christian maturity as, I don't know, this super intense thing. Like I want to I lean into the table. I want to be super missional at the end of my life. I, you know, I still want to be like passionate for Jesus and that stuff's fine. But as I've been like paying attention to the people in my life who have been following Jesus for a long time, who are a little bit older, here's what's true of them is they walk in a room and there's just this like sense of peace that comes over the room. Like I just feel calm in their presence and I don't see them freak out or panic about things because they just believe. Like they've seen Jesus come through for them over and over and over again enough that they just actually trust him. I want to be like that. I want a church to be like that. I think it honors him. I think it demonstrates the gift that we have in Christ when we're like that. Okay. Tactic number two of Satan, doubt and fear. Look at the second half of verse eight through verse nine. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So notice, what, what is the roaring of this lion? It's suffering and persecution. Satan was trying to scare off Christians from their faith by letting them walk through persecution and suffering for their faith. He's trying to intimidate Christians to deny Christ. And, and we just got done talking about anxiety, right? And how we shouldn't have it. This seems like something that would be fairly legitimately anxiety-inducing. Like this is what this is saying, is there is a spiritual being more powerful than you who is trying to scare you out of your faith and can manipulate physical circumstances against you. That seems like 
kind of a legit thing to be anxious about. But I, I want you to see this command that Peter gives them in the face of that suffering. He says, resist Satan, resist him. If you think about it, that is an, that is an odd command. Okay, if we're at the zoo together and we go, we go to the, the lion pen and you're climbing the lion cage for unknown reasons, but in this scenario, you're climbing the lion cage, you fall into the lion pen. The lions now know that you're there. I'm going to yell something at you. It won't be, resist them, fight them off. You've got this. You can take a lion. You can't take a lion. You don't fight lions. The thing I'm going to yell is run, get out of the lion cage. Peter doesn't say run. He says, resist him. Resist. Why? Because Christ can tame that lion. Because Jesus is stronger than your enemy. Because the one who loves you is stronger than the one who hates you. And because you've actually got a lion in your corner too. You've got the lion of the tribe of Judah and he will fight for you. And this is what happened is, yeah, Satan is roaring, but he's got no bite because Jesus knocked out his teeth. This is what happened in the resurrection. If the teeth of Satan were all of the things that he could threaten you with, sin and death, pain, suffering, separation from God, this is what Jesus did in the resurrection is he defeated all of them. Is, is Jesus took on Satan's greatest weapons. He took the punishment for our sin. He took on death itself. And then he got out of the grave, declared himself victory, the victor over this place, the king of this place, the rightful king kicked out Satan and said, you guys now can come in. He beat death and then he invited you into new life. That is the one who is fighting for you. And so here's what that means is that everything that Satan could possibly throw at you just rolls off your back because you have Christ. What could he throw at you? Sin. Jesus has forgiven you for every sin that you've ever committed in your life or every sin you will ever commit if you are in Christ. Suffering. Jesus is in control of everything that happens in your life and he's able to turn bad things out for your good. Fear of loss of your salvation, Jesus will hold on to you. Every single weapon of the devil that comes at you, you can deny in Christ. And in the biggest thing that he possibly could throw at you, the thing that we all are intuitively afraid of as people is death itself. But what is true for you as a Christian? To live as Christ and to die is gain. Why? Because when you die, if you are in Christ, you will be waking up to reality. And you will wake up to the place that you were born for, that you've always dreamed about, that you've wanted this world to be, and it never has been. You will be there, and you will be with him. Satan can't touch you. He is stronger than you, but he is not stronger than Jesus. And Jesus fights for you. Let's look at verse 10. This is how he closes out this section. I think he does it really intentionally. He gives you the warning about what Satan is trying to do, but then he gives you the comfort of his love and his grace. Verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I love that. When you are weak, when you are discouraged, when you are afraid, Jesus can strengthen you. And I love that it says he himself will strengthen you. 
It makes it, it makes it personal. It's like Jesus could have all the cares in the world besides you, but he comes to you personally and says, I want to lift you up. I want to strengthen you. I want to establish you in your faith. This is why humility and faith in Christ actually work. Is because humility is actually the way to true greatness and true strength. Not in like a cheesy quote way, like in a real way. Here's why. Is because when you humble yourself before the mighty hand of God, this is what you're doing, is you're exchanging your fake strength, the strength that wouldn't have held you on for his real strength that will sustain you. And I want you to see that he has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. That is the ultimate defense for a Christian of anything that comes your way in life is that Jesus has called you to his glory. So first he's called you. What does that mean? It means that before you were ever born, Jesus looked ahead and he saw you and he wanted relationship with you. And then since your birth until your death, he will form the circumstances of your life so that you will know him and experience joy with him forever and eternity. And every single person that Jesus calls in the beginning, he will finish in the end. You will not fall from his hand. He will hold you even when you don't know how to hold on to him. And what's he calling you to? He's calling you to glory. The world beyond this world that we can't yet see, but that one day will become real before our eyes. Hope will be realized and we will be glorious with Jesus and we will live in glory with him forever. That can get you through anything now. Because whatever you're experiencing now is temporal, that is eternal. Whatever you're experiencing now is fading, that will last forever. You've been called to glory. That will provide for and protect your soul. Let me pray. Jesus, we affirm together that that stuff is true, even though it's really hard for us to believe. And so we just acknowledge, God, we don't, we don't see the supernatural world. We don't, we don't know exactly what heaven is going to be like or what eternity is going to be like. But Jesus, we've seen the evidence of your love for us, and so we trust you. And so would you make us people who believe even when we don't fully understand or even when we don't see everything because it's real. Convince us, God, convince us that this is not all there is because we don't want to live just for this life. We want to live for the one that's coming. And so convince us that it's real. And, and God, we, we need your help and your protection from an enemy who is trying to distract us from you. And so we confess our sin, we confess our pride, we confess our anxiety, we confess our fear, and we ask you to strengthen us because we need it, God. We, we can't fight him alone, but, but you can fight him. And so fight him for us and, and, and carry us into eternity. We, we're looking forward to seeing you someday. And so God, we, we together affirm, we believe. We believe that you are who you said you are. We believe that that the hope that you've promised us is actually coming and that it's worth living for. We believe 
that there's this world around us that we can't see, but is very real and has real consequences. And so we wanna, we wanna live like that's true. And so give us the power that we need to live like that's true. And thanks for saving us, Jesus. We would have had no chance if it was up to us. But you've saved us from the consequences of, of our sin, from eternal separation from you. You've brought us into your presence and you've given us hope and give us, us the ability to, to trust you instead of being afraid or anxious. And so we celebrate that together. We celebrate you. We love you. Amen.